0: This past week was Christmas, and uh, many of us visited family. Some of us did not visit family. Some of us, it was a time of joy. Others, not so much. Some, for some of us, eyes are filled with tears of joy. Others, tears for other reasons. Some rolling of the eyes. It can be a difficult time. The Christmas season is a difficult time for people because we love our families, but there's no family that's challenge-free. It's a very difficult time of year for a lot of people, of course, because if hope and peace and love and joy are all hinging on family, that's not very good news. Especially if, not only that, but if we swan dive into the culturally mandated season of consumer debt, then we're in for a rough January. And thankfully for believers, we can love our families, enjoy our families, but not magnify family, worship family, seek to find hope and peace And enjoy in an ultimate sense in family. That would just be a crushing burden on them and on our own souls. And yet, interestingly, Christmas is, after I just said that, about family, but not your family or my family. It's ultimately about God's global, historical, multicultural family. His family, his vision for family that will be enjoyed for all of eternity. Every single Sunday, Believers, since the resurrection of Christ, have been gathering around a tree, the cross of Christ. We've been celebrating the ultimate gift, the gift of grace, through Jesus Christ's life, his atoning death, his divine resurrection, um, that we as God's beloved creation, we are reunited with our creator, that indwelled by his spirit, our souls can actually flourish. And this morning we're going to look at a passage that speaks to God's vision for this family From Galatians chapter 3 and 4, we're going to look at some excerpts. We're going to unbox grace. We're going to look at what God did to set in motion that first Christmas day in order for him to have this family. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, and then chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor and disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a tutor. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his children, God has set the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a child, and if a child, then also an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. So as we explore this text, it has a significant amount of profound doctrines in it. Line by line, this thing is rich. It could take weeks and unpack some really good systematic theology because it's actually loaded with language that the Apostle Paul intentionally puts together here. Obviously, we can't do that this morning, but I'm going to get us started. I'll kind of pick the corner off of the gift, and then as you meditate on it, think about it, perhaps revisit the scripture, you can have the satisfaction of peeling the plastic off all the goodness that's in this text. Uh, We have a couple things I want us to look at. We're going to look at the gift, the benefits, and the new life. So first, let's consider this gift. We've been given the gift of redemption. This is the passion of the Son. And in verse 4, it says that Jesus Christ arrived that first Christmas day, born of a woman. And this is a significant phrase because it reminds us that God was fully human. He humbled himself, and he was born of uh, Virgin Mary. It reminds us that our God has two natures and one essence. During the the time of the writing of the Nicene Creed, Athanasius and friends were putting this creed together to talk about God properly because there was a lot of heresy going around uh, God concerning his natures and so they came up with a theological term it's not in the Bible but the term that they used the Greek word is homoousios, which means one essence and it was a way of saying Jesus Christ was fully God yes fully human yes but one essence the very essence of God that when you're looking at Jesus you're looking at God. If you don't understand what God is like, the perfect interpretation is to look at Jesus. If what you see in Jesus does not match your ideas about God, then it's the ideas about God that need to be revisited because it is Christ that is the perfect image. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said many other things in the Gospels. That our God humbled himself and humiliated himself and he came into the mess and poverty of a manger... Because he was willing to come into the mess and the poverty of humanity. Because in his tremendous love, this king of majesty is also king of tremendous mercy. He identifies with the weak. He was willing to become weak. He identifies with the poor. He was willing to become poor. The scripture says, though he was rich, he became poor. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. So he's born of a woman. This significant doctrine that reminds us that our God is accessible. He's not got his arms crossed, some cosmic ogre at a distance watching humanity just spiral. He came into the mess. It also says he was born under the law to redeem us from the law. And that phrase, you have to remember that the Apostle Paul was an expert in the law. That phrase is a mic drop on dead religion because this letter to Galatia uh, is written intentionally because they had a massive problem in Galatia that was coming up in the church, which was dead religion. The religion of the Pharisees. The idea that what Christ did was actually not enough, but that you needed to actually keep, continue to keep the Mosaic law, the Torah, in order to ensure that your salvation was actual. They, Paul said, this is absolutely erasing the gospel. The law has a purpose. It's a, it's a beautiful and a wonderful purpose, but that's not the purpose. They had a problem in Galatia, and Paul is dropping a mic on it right now, saying, no, he came to redeem us from the law because what Jesus Christ did at the cross was not make salvation possible so that your rule-keeping makes it actual. That's the anti-gospel. Saying, so, you no, know, what Christ did was sufficient. He made it not only possible, but Christ's sacrifice makes it actual. He actually unpacks that very Thoroughly all through the rest of chapter 3 of Galatians. The Pharisees, of course, knew the Scriptures better than anybody, but they practiced dead religion. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Dead religion is the idea of salvation by rule-keeping. And the core of our Christian faith, faith is salvation by rescue. And there's a chasm between salvation by rule-keeping and salvation by rescue. The Apostle goes on in verse 23 to show us that the law actually does have an important purpose. It still does. We don't fulfill the Mosaic law as per the book of Leviticus, but the principles behind those laws are still tremendously helpful and valid today. That we want to be people of purity and of love and of humility and of care and caring for neighbor. And so if you look behind the, the details of the Levitical laws, the principles of those laws are still helpful for us because they come out of God's person, even though we don't keep the actual precept. And so, in verse 23, he says that the law has a purpose, and the purpose is not to deliver. So he gives an image of the law, which is a prison guard. Now, guards do not bring deliverance. Guards are a constant reminder that we need deliverance. I'll give you an example of how the law reminds us that we need deliverance. I've told this story before, but what am I going to do? I'm a pastor and I'm a dad, so you can hear stories more than one time. I was in New York City for a conference because before we planted Redeemer, I worked for an organization that was trying to get Bibles translated into uh, specific regions where they didn't have the Bible in their language, and then I would uh, go on some of these trips and deliver these scriptures, and it was tremendously exciting and rewarding work. And, and the American Bible Society had, a, had an office in New York City, and that's why I was there. Leaving them at the airport and. I see this New York snow globe, and I'm like, I'm going to get Susan this New York snow globe. Um, Susan loves New York City. It's a cool city. She spent months living there as a teenager in Brooklyn working with inner city kids. 90s Brooklyn, not modern, super cool coffee shop Brooklyn. It was terrible Brooklyn. And so I'm like, I'm going to get her this this snow globe. And I get to the security, and the guy says to me, sir, you can't bring the snow globe on the plane. That's a weapon. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And all of a sudden it dawns on me, actually, I guess this could be a weapon. This thing is super heavy. Starts against the law. I'm like, whoa, easy. Uh, this isn't a weapon. I, I mean, I don't think it's a weapon. I wouldn't use it as a weapon. But what I think doesn't matter. How I feel about it doesn't matter. My thoughts and feelings on them aren't... The intentions of my heart are not relevant. What's relevant is the law. And as soon as he said that... I realized there were signs literally everywhere, every ten feet, saying no snow globes, no snow snow globes. Snow globes are against New York State law, no snow globes, no snow globes on the plane. Check them in your baggage, check them in your baggage. Oh my goodness, the law was everywhere. Like once the law got spoken, I saw it everywhere. This is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to draw our attention to our need for deliverance. And in verse 24, it gives another image of the law, not just the prison guard, but a tutor. Now it's a different kind of tutor. Our, our daughter, uh, Rebecca, when she was in high school, she started doing tutoring. She was a tutor and uh, tutored kids and had some great stories of like, just great connections with the kids and wonderful stories, that, like warm stories. One little guy in particular, always cute stories. This is not that kind of a tutor. In the original Greek, the term is paedagogos, which is a way of saying a harsh disciplinarian. And these tutors would put you under house arrest, essentially. Their purpose was to enforce the morals, the values, the virtues of the family to remove your freedoms. And the reason they were so harsh was because it was typically a child that was inheriting, inheriting something really significant. And so the thought process was: you can't just give this incredible inheritance to a child whose immature ways are going to just destroy the inheritance with their wayward appetites. So they need tutoring. But it was harsh. And so Paul gives these two pictures to, to realize, no, we actually, this is what the purpose of the law is, to see, um, draw our attention to our need for something to save us from our own wayward appetite. In Matthew 22, when Jesus um, summarizes the law, he says it's to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind, our strength to love our neighbor as ourselves. That as he's summarizing the law, you realize how easy it is for us to prefer ourselves. We can't just read the summary of the law and go, mmm, good word, got it. I'm just going to move on now. If we like, just sit in it, we're like, oh my goodness. I actually have quite a proclivity to think about myself first. Because to love is to enter into someone else's need. It's to enter into their pain, their hurt, their life. It's intentionally emptying ourselves. But it is so easy to do the opposite of this, to insulate ourselves to treat the church community like the grocery store. You know what I mean by this is like when you go to the grocery store and you're in a rush. You don't want to see anybody. You don't want to have any conversations. You're like, get in, get the stuff, get out. And church can be that way. Look, man, I don't want to get into all these other people's lives. It's going to get in, pick up the fruit of the spirit, get out. Just like that's what, that's what worship is. I checked the box. I went to church. But I'm not, don't tell me your name. I don't want to know your drama. I have my own drama. i got my own stuff. It's very, very easy to go through the motions. Not being like, oh, you know what, I'm going to love. But that is like tremendously inconvenient. So we realize, oh my goodness, the law of God, which is, to summarize, a law of love. That's what it is. Jesus breaks it all down. He's like, if you did this, you kept the whole law. You kept all of it. Love God with all of your guts and love the people sitting next to you. You kept the law. But I don't know about you. I'm not that great at keeping the law. I mean, sometimes I'm fantastic at it, frankly. But other times, like just now, I'm terrible at it. And, and you are the same. I'm, all, I'm not elevated above you. I'm only standing up here because I'm short. I'm preaching to myself. We need to keep God's law. But that's the purpose of the law is the law. So we've received this tremendous gift of, of redemption. Because, of course, we couldn't keep the law, and Christ has kept it. And just as the night sky accentuates the brilliance of the stars, God's law accentuates the brilliance of God's forgiving grace against this massive backdrop of selfishness that's in all of our hearts. So, of course, this is the good news. The good news is that Jesus did not come to just motivate better performance of the law. The people of God had millennia of prophets doing that. And Jesus Christ is not just another prophet— He's prophet, priest, and king, which is an entire, not the sermon series for another time. He fulfilled all of those offices perfectly, but ultimately he came as redeemer. So verse four, verse 4, chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Christ was born under the law to redeem. That's the purpose of it, to redeem. And it's actually a pretty striking phrase, because to redeem in the Greco-Roman world was often used to describe buying slaves. To redeem someone to pay to pay for someone in full to tell a stop, which is incidentally the word the last words Jesus said on the cross, paid in full, it is finished, redeemed, bought the slaves back it 's it's, it's, it's horrendous imagery, slavery, but Paul uses it because it 's uncomfortable because we realize, ah, apart from the redemption and the grace of christ i 'm a slave to my own wayward appetites and natures and desires, which culminate in not wanting God, but rather being God. Let's move on to the second thing, the benefits. We we relate to life in relation to the benefits of adoption. And this was always the plan of the Father. Always the plan. So Paul uses this strong language. It's a tremendous doctrine. As you unpack this teaching of adoption and all that it means and all the implications. We've got the senior kids are in the service today. I'll ask a question of the kids. How many of you guys on Christmas got a gift that you thought was pretty exciting and that you enjoyed? Yeah, you did. You got some, uh, some big kids did too. And probably kids, when you got that gift that you unpacked and you were like, wow, this is so exciting. You probably didn't wrap your arms around your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa or your brother or your sister or whoever gave you the gift. You probably didn't wrap your arms around their neck and then whisper into their ear, I'm going to pay you back. You probably didn't do that because that's not the correct response. To gifts. Not only that, but if you're five years old, it's impossible. You can't pay it back. How are you going to pay it back? You can't get a job. You can't. Oh no, I can do work around the house and my parents can pay me. No, then they're paying themselves back. It's their money. You can't. It's impossible. That's not how you respond to a gift. So this benefit of adoption is, whoa, wait a second. We are receiving something that is absolutely tremendous. And God invites us into this benefit of adoption, this life of absolute worship. And it says in verse 5 that we receive this adoption as sons, into sonship. He uses this term on purpose. Often in the New Testament, you could translate adelphos, which means brothers or brethren, as like brothers or sisters, as adelphoi. All languages work this way. English works this way. Hey, guys, you don't mean, hey, male people, right? In, 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 in Italian, if my family says Ragazzi, they mean everybody. They don't mean only the guys, only the girls. This is how languages work. But Paul specifically puts sons in there. You'll notice at the end of the sentence, he just says children. But he specifically says sons because in the ancient world, you didn't get an inheritance unless you were a son. So he's actually being really subversive to the culture by using a term that's only reserved for those who get an inheritance, the oldest son, actually. And he says, actually, you're all sons. So ladies, he's not insulting you by calling you sons in in an ancient language sense. He's saying actually, the women are the sons. A way of saying, sit sit into this identity of receiving an inheritance that your culture uh, doesn't afford you. But in Christ, there's the removal of this barrier. It's actually tremendous language that he uses very very intentionally. It it actually made this, this doctrine of adoption made the church communities very revolutionary places to be because there was a removal of the barriers of class it didn't matter if you're a master or a slave owner when you went into a first century church some of the leaders in the church well most of them likely were slaves economic slaves they had to have been and you might have been a master but not when you went in the church you're just relating brothers and sisters it removed class barriers it removed culture barriers. It removed the barriers of whether you're a man or a woman. In the the stratified Greco-Roman world, it removed that barrier. And so this adoption makes us like children with nothing to prove. Because we know we're loved. We know we're provided for. We have an, an innate sense of identity. It's not an identity that we have to achieve. It's received. We don't curate it. Adoption enables us to engage in life with this humble confidence. We're not worried about the future. The anxiety that comes from needing success and needing our education to lead us into success. The accolades of our vocation, social status. We need the city, our friend circles to give us a name. We need our social media to be highlight reels of our personal brands. All of this stuff to grant us a sense of security. It all dissipates. It all just evaporates in the reality of our adoption. Because now we can just enjoy good things without needing to elevate them to become the thing and worship them. Which is the human condition if we don't worship Christ alone. My friend. Breathe. He's got you. He's got your life. Your God is on the other side of every decision you ever make. And he's working it out for the good of his glory and the good of your salvation. I don't mean working it out in the way you think he's going to work it out. I mean, even if that thing crashes and burns, he works it out. He, resur- he is a resurrection specialist. He will carry you. He's got you. Adoption and the security that comes with adoption is an absolute game changer. It is the pinnacle of Paul's argument in Galatians. It is the climax of the gospel. It is the, per- the point and the celebration of Christmas. We are God's children. The Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. To be God's children, enjoying life to the full with God. This is the apex of creation. This is the goal of redemption. Which leads us to the final thing. We embrace this new life of flourishing and formation. And this is the work of the Spirit. Verse 24 says, Christ has come. We no longer need the tutor. This is a picture of a child who comes to maturity and does not need to be coerced into obedience because they have internalized the values. That's what maturity is. It's not casting off the Bible. Legalism. What, and what planet are you from? It's internalizing the values. How many, how many of you kids have noticed your parents guard your eating habits? They don't just let you eat whatever you want. right? There's a reason for that. Because if they didn't help you develop an appetite for healthy food, establish good eating patterns, your four food, food groups would be M&M's, French fries, Fruit Loops, and Farmer's Wraps. That would be, there that would be. And so, one day you might value a healthy diet, but that day is not today, and so you need a tutor. Maturity is internalizing the values. Spiritual maturity, it involves growing in the knowledge of God's Word. It involves that. But it's not defined by that. The truly spiritual, spiritually mature are not those with a vast knowledge of God's Word. They are those who have internalized His Word. Not memorizing precepts, loving a person. That's the truly mature. The Pharisees knew the Scriptures better than anybody. They had the Pentateuch memorized. Penta, five books. Pentateuch, five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorized. Jesus didn't have anything good to say about their academia. Because they had not internalized God's love. And when people were with them, they felt worse. So something went wrong. That theology is an absolute gong show. If people feel worse, something didn't get internalized. Dead religion. Priding themselves on the knowledge of God's law. Weaponizing God's law. Never internalizing God's love. But then in the other ditch, are the... The lawless, the antinomians, the juvenile, those who think about God's grace and define God's grace, they 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 treat God's grace like a like a teenager refusing to shower, just masking their absolute stench with axe body spray. Grace is just about, hey, maybe you should like take a shower and change some patterns. What? That's legalism. Grace, baby. I just want to talk about grace. That is, what are we doing? Prayer and scripture in my home, legalism, oh, coming to church every Sunday, carving that out of my life, legalism, oh, legalism, giving my money, whoa, legalism, the preacher's corrupt. Come on, man, legalism? Somebody, get this man a lexicon. That's not legalism, these are disciplines for our flourishing. When the child internalizes the values, they mature, they do not need the tutor, because when the law says, thou shalt do this, my heart is saying, I want this. Notice how the text moves from an image of life under the law to the image of life under grace. It moves from the harsh disciplinarian, because left to our past vices, we wouldn't desire it, and it flips to adoption, being a child. Adoption, even though there's a huge process before the adoption day, if you're the one being adopted, you're not a part of that huge process. You have no contribution to your adoption. You have no contribution to your justification. There's a huge process, but it doesn't involve you, but you benefit from it. Adoption, justification, one-time legal event that happens. It's by grace. But then the life of adoption, the sanctification, also by grace, we do have a participation in Because now we're learning to live into family values. We're learning to live into growing into the resemblance of the family of which we've been adopted. And it's all flowing from freedom and joy and thankfulness and gratitude. And so we can ask ourselves some good diagnostic questions from this text, I think. Where can I celebrate spiritual maturity? I mean, where has God done a work? Praise God, celebrate those ways in which the adoption has settled into your soul. And where can you confess immaturity? Where are you capable of this immaturity? You know, humor is a great device to help the medicine go down, but where were you laughing and going <laughs> in today's sermon? The strategically placed jokes. In my pastoral technique, contextual sniping of all of us and I, trust me as I was writing this I was like oh no that's, my, that's part of my process every week of preaching is realizing Oof, should can I qualify to say this I'm desperate and that's what qualifies me and so we're no longer children we're heirs that's verse 6 and 7 That child is now embarking on this lifelong journey of ongoing formation. They're no longer slaves to the old nature. Sure, all of us, even though we're free in Christ, we walk back into the cells of our old ways and we shut the doors behind us. We all do it like fools. The proverb says the dogs return to their vomit. Yep. We've all done it. Disgusting image. And yet we are these free children. Those little children in that context that Paul's referring to, they weren't adopted and given a massive inheritance and then left at the mercy of their old way of thinking. Left at the mercy of their old way of relating to themselves or their family or others. No, and we weren't left that way either. There's a spiritual component here. God's family comes with His vision and His empowerment for new humanity. And it's by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who does real transformation in our hearts and our lives. Life under the law looks like... Needing to repeatedly be told what God loves. But a life under grace is going to love what he loves. Life under the law. Repeatedly needing to be told what God says is true and wise and good. Life under grace. Embracing the life of living into what God says is true and wise and good. Notice the if and then language in this passage. If if a son, then also an heir. It's this intentional construction of cause and effect logic. It's not a divine guilt trip. Hey, if you love God, you ought to be up to this. It's cause and effect. If you love God, this fruit is inevitable. Yes, it's gradual. Yes, it's painfully gradual. Yes, sometimes you look in the mirror and it seems imperceptible, but it is inevitable. This is what the indwelling power of God does as he slowly forms us by the power of the Spirit and we participate in this in living into our new lives in Christ. And so the good news of this ongoing formation, this freedom from our vices, increasingly living into Christ's virtues, may this be our prayer. Oh God, what are you calling me out of? What are you calling me into and the good news of this whole passage, and the intentional construction of it, is that this is not accomplished by willpower. This is accomplished by, our spirit, by the Spirit's power, to which we can, with great joy, add our willpower. The Spirit's work, it's not sporadic, mystical experiences that come and go willy-nilly through, through our lifetime the spirit's work it's ongoing formation it is rich heart and mind renewal over the course of our lifetime we're calling him abba father we are on a trajectory of increasing uh, increasingly bearing the resemblance of our father because that's precisely what children of grace want and because you are his children god has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts and so that you are no longer slaves but children And because we are children, we are also heirs through God. Amen. Let's pray.